This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, February 26. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Galena Gleason announces commissioner bid. Elections and schools on Capital Conversation. Trail proposal is a path forward. And a mountain weather forecast. Current County Planning Commissioner and Norwood resident Galena Gleason is announcing her bid for the seat of District 3 San Miguel County Commissioner. My background, I'm a fifth generation Coloradan, um, Telluride High School alumni. I'm a small business entrepreneur. I'm an outdoor industry leader. Um, and I'm a graduate from Montana State University School of Agriculture. Gleason grew up in Telluride and moved to Norwood about 10 years ago, where she lives with her family on a small upstart farm. The county's third district is geographically its largest, beginning in communities down valley and encompassing the mesas out through Norwood. It then stretches on to the Utah state line. Across that spread, Gleason sees a call to represent a diversity of interests and lifestyles, but also certain commonalities. I would say the characteristic of those who live and call District 3 home are really salt-of-the-earth, down-to-earth people. And that is something that really resonates with me. And when we moved from the east end of the county to the west end of the county and I really started to get to know my neighbors, I just felt at home. We all really care about the land and our community. Though county commissioners must reside in the district they represent, all voters across the county can cast a ballot in all commissioner races. Gleason says wherever folks reside, quality of life comes down to some really core elements. You know, if we have clean water, good access to local food, and reliable shelter that makes us all feel like we're living a dignified life, then we have a healthy livelihood. The current District 3 Commissioner Chris Holstrom is termed out at the end of the year, leaving an open seat. Norwood Mayor Candy Meehan previously announced her bid to succeed Holstrom as an independent. Gleason runs as a Democrat. I sat down with Candy a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We had a cup of coffee and You know, we've been really candid in our conversations, um, specifically regarding Norwood and, you know, our visions. And, you know, we come from really different backgrounds, but we have common respect for each other and um, are going to support each other, whoever comes out uh, um, winning the seat for this race. To learn more about Gleason and her bid, visit GalenaGleason.com. It's Monday, time for a legislative update. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Lucas Brady Woods talks elections, student rights, and more. So to start things off, we're basically a week out from Super Tuesday, which includes Colorado's presidential contest. Um, just kind of starting with elections, are you seeing any effects in the state house on kind of this political moment? Absolutely. Elections are, are definitely on people's minds here at the Capitol. First thing is, is today was the last day that Colorado voters should mail in their ballots 
for the presidential primary. All the votes and ballots need to be in by 7 p.m. on Election Day, which, as you said, is Super Tuesday, March 5th, next week. And um, just to ensure that the votes are counted, if you haven't mailed your ballot in already, you should plan on going to an official ballot drop box and submitting it in person or voting in person at a polling place. But as far as what people here at the State House are thinking about, there's actually some legislation being considered at the moment that would make some reforms to Colorado's election system. One of the biggest is centered around a fake electors scheme. Now, electors are the members of the electoral college that each state has that uh, officially cast votes for president. You know, these attempts to submit fake electors were an attempt to, as I said, change the election's outcome. And specifically, the bill would make it a class one misdemeanor to either serve as a fake elector or to organize or help organize a fake elector scheme. And actually, this is one of the first of its kind laws in the U.S. Uh, New Mexico is also considering a similar one. Um, And so, you know, whichever of these passes will be the first in the nation. But as of now, unless these are passed, it's not a crime at all to be a fake elector or to fake, you know, a slate of electors or something like that. So this this would make it a crime. Um, Now, another election reform bill that's pending here at the Capitol would make it illegal to distribute so-called deep fakes. And those are AI generated images or videos or or uh, I believe audio recordings of candidates. So it would make those illegal as well. Hmm. This is all interesting stuff. I also understand that kind of moving on to uh, a different a different crop of bills, there are some that might affect young folks in schools. Is that right? There are a ton, actually. Um, but a few notable ones have been sort of top of mind for lawmakers in recent weeks and days. Um, one of them actually <laughs> was put forward by students at Durango High School, um, and it's based on an effort they made in their own district. And what this law would do is is basically it would – allow for more drug overdose reversal medications to be in schools. Those are called, you know, more commonly known as naloxone or Narcan, and they're, they essentially reverse opioid overdoses as they're in progress, and, and they're really known to save lives across the board. Schools actually can already stock and distribute these, these medications, but the bill would also allow students to carry them on campus, on school buses, and at any school event. Now, another bill that's getting a lot of attention is around students' names, and it's, it's focused on protections for transgender students when they want to go by a certain name that's not maybe their, their birth name or their legal name. And under the bill, it would be considered discrimination if a school refuses to use a student's preferred name. You know, this is actually getting a lot of, this bill is getting a lot of pushback on the floor and in debate, mostly from conservative lawmakers. But we've seen this and a few other bills that, you know, add supports for transgender young people getting some serious pushback um, from conservative lawmakers. And none of them are resolved yet. And and we will likely continue to see heated debate over these bills throughout the session. All right, Lucas, thank you for this update as always. We hope you have a great week and talk to you later. Thanks so much for having me. That was Statehouse reporter Lucas Brady-Woods in Denver. The Box Canyon is crisscrossed with trails. Surely you have your favorite. Whether it's a stony path in the reaches of the high country 
or a little ramble in your neighborhood, a daily ritual, a place to go in all seasons, moods, and moments. Well, Jordan Carr, who is trails director with the Telluride Mountain Club, says despite our resources, we could do better. We need to improve our trail infrastructure. Like, yes, we we have great trail infrastructure because we're surrounded by public lands and we're surrounded by a, a lot of historic mining land. But that being said, all of those trails were were created without recreation in mind. I mean, they, they weren't created as recreational trails. The Mountain Club began in the 80s with the original goal of promoting avalanche education and safety in the Box Canyon. By the time Carr was getting involved a few years ago, it had become, he says, more of like a, an advocacy organization for, for access, for climbing, and then for backcountry skiing off of the ski resort. What ties all these outward-bound activities together? Heidi Lauterbach, the club's executive director, says it's trails. A couple of years ago, we had an aha moment during one of our board meetings, which is every great adventure begins with a trail, whether that's going to a climbing crag, hiking, biking, trail running, you know, essentially even backcountry skiing, you're starting at a trailhead. Following that boardroom epiphany, Carr recalls. Heidi and I started to have conversations around what what a visionary proposal would look like. Working with various landowners in the area, the county, the town, the Forest Service, and so on, the Mountain Club pieced together a vision of what a more interconnected, safer, and all-encompassing trail system could look like. Where were the missing links? Where did trails dead end on a road? What areas were underserved by trails? Through that visioning process, the club put together a trail proposal and brought it to the U.S. Forest Service. Now, at long last, the Forest Service is opening the Mountain Club's proposal for public comment, the first step in a long trail approval process. The trail plan that they developed was largely uh, constituent-driven, right? It's what do recreationists want to see on the landscape. And so that gives us a starting point. That's Norwood District Ranger Megan Eno. The forest is meant to provide a multitude of resources and feeds a variety of public needs. And so for us, Um, providing recreation resources is a part of our mission. And we're always really grateful when um, communities and interest groups kind of vet what some of their needs are um, so that we can analyze projects that are likely to be um, what the community actually needs. That's exactly what the Mountain Club has done, looking at community needs and putting forth a proposal which includes new trails in Ilium Valley, a new trail connecting Mountain Village to Telluride, a traverse of Sheep Mountain, and many more. Trails that were controversial or complex were stripped from the proposal for the time being in hopes of streamlining the approval process. You can view the full map at TellurideMountainClub.org. Releasing the plan after nearly a decade of work, Lauterbach says, It's really exciting to be here because it has taken so long to get here and there's been so many iterations of the trail proposal and back and forth between the Mountain Club and the Forest Service. So it feels it feels really good that we're here. Um, I think Ultimately, we still have a long ways to go. Before any trails can be implemented, they'll need to be analyzed by wildlife and plant experts, and then there's fundraising. New trail construction in the area costs roughly $40,000 a mile. 
But the focus for the time being, says Eno, is on gathering community input. The comment period for this project um, ends on March 18th of this year. Just a reminder to folks that we really want to hear from you. You can submit your comment on the GMUG website at fs.usda.gov gmug or follow the link through telluridemountainclub.org. 2024, we'll see multiple new workforce housing developments in the area welcome new residents. One of those, an expansion of the Village Court Apartments in Mountain Village, known as the Phase 4 expansion, should be move-in ready by April. In preparation, the town of Mountain Village will begin offering the 21 new apartments in this latest expansion to those on the VCA public waitlist and the VCA transfer waitlist. All the new units coming online are one and two bedrooms. Later this spring, a second building in this Phase 4 expansion will open, which offers suite-style living units. The second building is set aside for employees of Mountain Village businesses. The VCA waitlist has been closed due to high demand. If the new units exhaust the waitlist, it will reopen to the public. Last year, it seems ample food sources in the wild, likely related to a lessening of drought conditions in Colorado in 2023, kept bears away from human infrastructure and population centers. Compared to the average over the prior five years, Colorado Parks and Wildlife saw a 20% decrease in reports of human-bear interactions in sightings. The grand total for 2023 was 3,526 reported sightings. The majority of human-bear conflict stems from unsecured sources of food and trash around homes and businesses. As such, a year of ample snowpack and moisture, which in turn powers the state's crop of natural fruit and berries, is often tied with fewer bear sightings. Bears stay safely where they belong in the wild. You can learn more about bears and bear sightings and bear-proofing your own home at cpw.state.co.us. A museum exhibit and accompanying book and film are exploring the complicated history of buffalo soldiers in the West. During American westward expansion, cavalries of buffalo soldiers participated in the removal of indigenous people, a history artists are trying to reckon with. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has more. This project aims to you know, shine a light on African-American contributions to the West. Eric Carpio is the director of History Colorado's Fort Garland Museum in the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado. The museum is running the exhibit Buffalo Soldiers Revision. A film about the exhibit was screened recently at Fort Lewis College in Durango. Many Buffalo Soldiers were formerly enslaved before they joined the service, and so it's a story as well about you know freedom and aspiration and resilience, while also, uh, again, looking at that complexity and role that they were often asked to play being on the front lines of the removal of indigenous people. After the Civil War, the United States hired recently freed black men to serve in cavalries across the American West to defend the country's expanding border. One place they were stationed was Fort Garland in modern-day Colorado. 
As the U.S. annexed more states in the late 1800s, the brutal oppression of Native people continued. But Buffalo soldiers had a more nuanced role. Eric Carpio explains in a Q&A panel following the film screening. You know, one of the roles that Ninth Cavalry played uh, in the Valley was not just keeping mute members off of now white land, but also keeping white settlers and miners, traders, others off of the reservation as well, which also like adds another dynamic to this complicated story. And my approach to this project was really through the research. Esther Berlin is a Navajo woman and a professor at Fort Lewis College in Durango. She contributed original poetry to the exhibit at the Fort Garland Museum. She says in reckoning with the tough history of black soldiers and indigenous people in Colorado, she felt grief. Realizing that I had a personal emotional connection through the land, through the people, through the recovery of stories. And so part of it was to kind of figure out what is my role in this narrative? How can I honor these stories and kind of breathe life into them after they've been, you know, sort of hidden? One Buffalo soldier named John Taylor moved to La Plata County after his service in the 1800s, married a Ute woman, and worked as an interpreter with area tribes. The Mawach and the Kapote bands of Utes were removed from that area and brought here. Johnny Taylor Valdez is the great-grandson of John Taylor and a Southern Ute tribal member. He helped with the historical analysis at the Fort Garland exhibit. He says it's important to address the erasure of both Black people and Native people from history. Our local people have the opportunity to come out and listen to the artist, hear the story, understand what's happened. Their story is still being told in their homeland in their original place where they always will belong. The Buffalo Soldier exhibit at Fort Garland does not yet have a closing date. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for stormy conditions tonight, with wind, blowing snow, and possible new snow accumulations of 3 to 7 inches. The low is in the mid-20s. Expect snow and wind to continue Tuesday, with a high near 30 degrees and 4 to 8 additional inches of snow accumulation possible. The storm should clear overnight on Tuesday, leaving clear skies with a low around 10 degrees. Wednesday, expect sun with a high near 40 degrees, followed by a clear night with a low around 15. This has been the news for Monday, February 26. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. The League of Women Voters of the Uncompahgre Valley will co-sponsor a candidate forum with the city of Montrose. The forum will be held in Montrose City Council Chambers, 107 South Cascade, on Tuesday, March 12, 2024, at 5.30 p.m. Candidates will answer questions, mostly provided by audience members. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan political organization dedicated to voter education and empowerment and does not endorse political candidates or parties. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. 
If you'd like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.